Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Yes, Indeed podcast. My name is Bob Poverton. With me is... Ben Zeiger. And you aren't Bob Poverton. You are, in fact, Brian Computer. It's March 11th. And we're here to talk to you about video games again. Surprise! But we're gonna do it's uh, we I'm we have a nice format I think. Yeah. So this this sort of came out of uh, us finishing one game that we'll start with, and uh, sort of asking the question of why why are games compelling? You know what what makes games specifically video games different than other digital media like film tv whatever else uh so we're gonna kind of be breaking that up yeah try to dig into okay if that's the story they wanted to tell why did it have to be a video game to be good totally um so in attacking those i think the the three big topics we'll kind of touch on is like we're lost in the story but why you know do is it you know stakes are added through the mechanics, empathy is added through the perspective, or uh, do mechanics emphasize the story? Are you lost in those mechanics? Um, so, like, execution adds to the whole story narrative going on. Does this strategization make for an enhanced experience? Or can you just have an awesome time with your friends in a co-op madness kind of way that you couldn't have in anything else? Um, and then there's also being the, lost in a world. Exactly. So if you're lost in a world, is that like you're in a game and there's this living world around you where it really feels like you're like a little piece of it and part of this big picture? Does there is this there this massively created world that you know kind of reacts to you, but is also one of those like so much to dive into? You could only dive into it. It lets you find what you think is interesting and. Um, and that, and then also just like the style and feeling of certain games, it's just unbeatable. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about. Should we good? I don't know. Yeah. It's an extra long jingle for an extra long podcast. Extra long jingle for an extra long Yes, indeed. It's like the smart without the clever. It's like the podcast that goes on forever. It's like the forever without the happily. It's like the Italy without the Napoli. It's like the Napoli without the pasta. It's like Jamaica without the Rasta. It's like the Rasta without the weed. It's like the beverage without the mead. It's like the mead without the beer. It's like the frightened without the fear. It's like the fear without the magic cards. It's like the gorging yourself without the 800 tons of 
lard. Oh, God. <laughs> I was thinking tune yards. So, like I said, Brian and I just finished a game called The Last of Us that we played on PS4. And it's it's a very interesting game as a jumping off point to talk about games in general because it's very story driven. Most of the story comes through in cutscenes that aren't interactive and uh, and it's totally linear. So you, you don't actually have an impact on what happens in the story at all. It's just you're being told a story mostly through cutscenes and and then there are these gameplay sections in, in, in between cutscenes. And at the same time, I would certainly say that it, it needs to be a game. That if it was a movie, it would be okay. And since it's a game, it's so much better. So we wanted to try to unpack that. And talking about stakes through mechanics, I think a really good first window into what, what The Last of Us offers as a game. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is, I mean... To start things off, it's like a, it's also a game that's going for like hyper realism, where they spent so much of the time and budget and energy on um, motion capture, so essentially making the game look like people are moving like people, mm-hmm. um, and the graphics are very like this is this is a person. Um, a lot of it, you can see the like subtleties of acting in the characters' faces on the screen. So they wanted to go through the efforts of making this look good enough that it could be a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the, I think the reason that question stuck in our head of like, why does this need to be a game to be better is, was really, you think about it a bit when you're playing just cause you're like, wow, this looks like, this looks phenomenal. This really could be a movie. The dialogue's amazing. Some mm-hmm. of the best writing we've ever seen. Um, the characters are so awesome and like the voice acting and general acting is phenomenal. Yeah. So, um, what is added? Well, uh, before we dive into what, what, what is added, just a little background on what this thing is. Yes. That's a good idea. So the last of us is a game that came out originally on the third PlayStation PS3. And it is, uh, an exclusive to PlayStation. So it's kind of hard to get your hands on and experience, at the same time, it is one of the, the Herald is one of the best narrative-driven games ever made, if not one of the best games ever made in general. There was a BBC series called How Video Games Changed the World, where they highlighted like 25 of the most impactful video games of all time. So it starts with Pong, mm-hmm. and Last of Us is one of those ones at toward, toward the very end, where they're like, yeah, no, this like video games are art. They're here. They have big budget Hollywood style looks and feels and awesome stories. So mm-hmm. pay attention. <laughs> and speaking of those stories, so it it's sort of a familiar premise in some ways, where it's set it's set during this kind of zombie apocalypse of sorts. We're also uh, quick note at the top of this: we're going to be talking about a bunch of different games, but we're going to be keeping things spoiler free. Yes. Um. So. Uh, so, so if you're worried. Yeah. About- yeah, we won't be we won't be talking about endings of things, even though there are many of these games that the endings are just so compelling, they're so yeah. good. Um, but so for Last of Us, it's set up where there's this new fungal infection that's going around that infects people's brains, and as it does, they slowly start to lose control of their bodies, and uh, 
and the the spin that they put on it is that the zombies kind of or they're not called zombies but they the the people who are infected they they go through stages and they slowly go from being like people to having basically the the equivalent of sonar or echolocation and the the one of the more advanced types of these infected are, are these people or creatures called uh clickers and they basically walk around making clicking noises and then if you make noise then they immediately know where you are and charge at you um and they're very difficult to kill but the that's 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 the kind of like story backdrop where you're set up where you're in this world where if someone you know is bit or scratched by an infected they know they're gonna turn at some point Mm -hmm. but beyond that you it's not just like oh now i know that they're 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 infected now yeah because it's it is that gradual you can feel it it doesn't happen immediately so you kind of see them lose their humanity slowly over time yeah so that's the kind of world you're living in so the stakes feel really high it's not like they get bit and then they're immediately like ah, i'm right. evil now right well and the and that that point about humanity is so well taken because the the story itself is, is basically about these two characters that are working their way to get to safety essentially without going into any details and along the way there are all of these moments that start to question you know what what does it mean to be a person what does it mean to be human and and how how important is it to retain certain aspects of who you are in order to survive you know or sometimes in in competition with those two where you know in order to survive you have to do things that are inhuman and anyway there's lots of compelling ideas that could come through in any rendition of this narrative and yet there's something special about experiencing it as a game um one one quick qualifier is that you and i played this game on the hardest difficulty which i think affects things in an interesting way in general i i like games that are challenging and in this instance it's not so much just that i i want it to be harder and more so that i i really feel like the difficulty enhances the story in a lot of ways. And even if you play on an easier difficulty, you still get a certain amount of experience of, of it being a challenge. Yeah. This struggle to, to survive through different areas. And I think that that starts to get at the essential impact of an experience like the last of us, where when, when you're in a situation where, you know, you have to, make it through a building to get to the the next alley over and there are either infected or bandits or whoever that are in your way um the there are a lot of games where you just kind of like kick down the door and guns blazing just kind of like have a power fantasy where you can end up having feeling like a total awesome person and that's really not the experience of this game uh, it's so much more like for one one thing is that when when you aim a gun for the first time in the game, you don't have the same kind of precision target that you do in most games. It's very it moves around a lot because you're not playing as this like hyper trained soldier. You're playing as this person who's just trying to make make his way through the world and and 
there are all these moments also where, you know, if, if you're, if you're fighting somebody one-on-one and, and another person joins the fight, you don't get to just like cut through people like butter. They, they gang up on you and you won't survive, you know? So you have to really balance using your wits and using your strength. And, and there are all these moments when we were playing where it really, like, I, I felt this adrenaline rush, like I was fighting for my life. And I wouldn't have felt that if I was just watching it happen. The fact that I was in it and I knew the stakes and I knew that, you know, we had, we had played through a section a couple of times and, and, uh, and I didn't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again that added to some stakes. Um, and at the same time, also just in the moment, they do such a good job of making all of the sounds and feelings and animations just feel so real and so visceral. And that, that's just this, intense immersive experience of of what it's like to struggle to survive and it's and those moments generally aren't competing with story at the same time usually Mm -hmm. the way it works is you'll kind of be walking around the two of you and you'll get story bits and then they'll be like oh oh crap infected or like oh no there's i see some bandits and then you're like in a fighting part now so I would be annoyed if you had to do all this stuff while you were learning about the atmosphere and the environment or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's, they're very distinct sections, especially since like stealth is a big part of the mechanics of like staying hidden and making sure you don't get seen because you're just two people against always more than two people. Yeah. So the game is a lot about taking out people as, as in trying to, raise the odds in your favor so always trying to make it a 2v1 instead of a 2v7 yeah so you really have to size up what your competition is and and slowly execute and play patiently yeah and, um, and i think one thing is that the 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 cutscenes usually like you're saying are are just about these small character moments of these people interacting with each other and there's not a lot if any cutscenes of kind of action yeah. content the action content's basically all interactive and i think that what that does it lets you have the human side of the story while also feeling the the struggle and the conflict in a different way so you again in a movie if i was just watching a scene of two people fighting a bunch of zombies i'd probably kind of kick back and watch the mayhem unfold and not really care that much versus when i'm in it then uh, there's this feedback loop between these two setups where in the in the non-interactive portions that are cutscene driven, I start to become more invested in these characters. And then in the interactive portions that are these difficult galleries to struggle through, I, I want to fight so much harder because I'm, I'm starting to care about these characters. Well, that's the thing is, so the reason I like any story is because... I'm invested in the characters. I like I don't care about a journey for a journey's sake. I only care about like learning about people and 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 learning to care for them. So if you pitched the story of Last of Us and and you just hit quickly hit all the plot points to somebody, they would go, "Oh, you know, that's fine, whatever." But you most of the game isn't even about those like 
about the narrative evolving. It's it's really about the relationship of the two people mm-hmm. who are in your party. Um, and you ultimately end up really super caring about them. And you notice this amazing div- dynamic that develops between them. And there's some amount of like, we need each other to survive. And then there, that kind of evolves into caring. But caring is so dangerous in this world. Yeah. Because caring kind of leads to stupidity. Yeah. When you think about it, because once someone's infected, they turn slowly and you you need to be able to just Make move a, on. Yeah. Um, so caring is really dangerous and people are aware of that. Um, but the, the way they weave in and out of those story moments where it's really just you're learning more about the characters and those characters are so dynamic and real. They really, they not only feel like real people, but you feels like you really know them towards the end of the game. Mm-hmm. So then when you find the ending, you're like, this is the only way this could have happened. Yeah, certainly. Um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and I, I really respect it as a game creating such tangible characters. And I think those action sequences to, to kind of echo what Ben said they are so impactful because you care about the character so much. Um, they'd be whatever in any game without a story, but because you have this story, you're so invested. And you, when it feels challenging and difficult to overcome, that feels right mm-hmm. because that's what you're getting from the characters all the time. Yeah. Um, like they're constantly like exhausted and hungry and. <laughs> like on the verge of dying basically so um that struggle feels real and kind of makes it feel it all it always feels like it should be there mm-hmm. like it should be that difficult based on what's going on and then that way that's the storytelling of and this and it was a real struggle you don't actually have to show it you let people do it then they feel the struggle and then you don't have to spend time or words or anything on it and then all your words are spent developing, rounding out these characters that are two of the best characters I've seen, other than Max and Chloe, well, and like that's maybe what... Chloe and Rachel. <laughs> well, that's what I was gonna say is that uh, I think one thing that that um, I think there's a good pivot point that we'll see come up across a number of these examples is that you you have these characters who you become more emotionally invested in because you're interacting with them, so. The, the next one we want to talk about was talking about empathy through character perspectives. And uh, this game called The Beginner's Guide, which is one of your favorite games of all time. And, and a game that I, I really like also. Um, so do you want to give a little, a little background on that? Sure. So um, the way I, my elevator pitch for Beginner's Guide is usually, um, hey, so this is a game that uh, it's someone's going to be walking you through their own creation and it's one of the best experiences i've ever had that that is about creating and what it feels like to put yourself out there and the role of feedback and all of that and um like your own pressure to create plus external pressure to be pressure to create and how all those things interact together Mm -hmm. um that's kind of what beginner's guide explores uh and it does so basically through there's a narrator who's talking you through uh, a video game designer's work. So he boots up one of this person's games and then talks to you about what he thinks it means. Mm-hmm. And you keep doing a number of these video games and then it becomes clear 
what you're doing, what what the meta narrative sort of of this beginner's guide project is. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I that subject material I think is awesome. I don't think there are a ton of things that super explore that that pressure to create from multiple angles and doesn't and it's hard to do that without creating a thing that feels pretentious of mm. the like i don't want to watch a movie about writing a movie like that doesn't seem very interesting but beginner's guide i think gets away with it because of the angle it takes on all of it mm-hmm. um and beyond all of those things uh the reason i think it works so well is um it wouldn't work if somebody was just was showing you what someone's games looked like and was talking about it. But the fact that you're the one who's in those games interacting with stuff. And to be clear, these aren't, these aren't games like Halo, like you're not, you're not like booted up into a game where it's like super intense. These are more like experimental type of games where, um, you know, maybe you walk around and the only thing you see is darkness and a little circle of light around you. And on its own, you'd be like, what am I looking at? Yeah, you'd be like, this, is, this doesn't make sense. This is boring. Which is why this this narrative structure that's added on by the narrator is so important and makes the whole thing work because you're playing and he's like, okay, so this is what I think Koda meant when he made this game. And then your brain starts worrying and it goes, oh, that's interesting. Maybe this is about this. This is really cool. Let me think about how Coda exists and why this exists as a product of Coda. Um and again, none of that would work if you weren't in the guts of his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I, I definitely feel like you could never have the beginner's guide as an experience without it being a video game because of what it is. And, and we've, we've kind of had a debate a bit between the two of us about um, whether being a video game person is important for a beginner's guide being impactful and I've always erred on the side of saying I don't think it's important at all mm-hmm. because to me, even though you're exploring video games, it's about creation. Right. It's about creativity. And anyone who has, who's ever felt like, I feel like I should be more creative or I, um, I created a, a thing in the world and people are reacting to it positively. How does that make me feel? People are reacting negatively to it. How does that make me feel? No one's reacting to it. How does that make me feel? Um, why am I doing all of this? Why am I bothering to create a thing if no one's consuming it? Or if people are liking it, what's that pressure feel like? Like all of those questions, I don't think any game really raises questions about in the same way as this game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure another medium could tackle it, but just the way it happens in here where you're, I think the way it works narratively where you're exploring this person's games, you have your own thoughts and then you have whoever's narrating the game's thoughts. And then you're also kind of thinking about Coda, who's the designer who you Mm -hmm. never get to meet. The fact that all three of those things are distinct and are happening kind of in parallel means that this game explores a lot that you couldn't do if it was a thing where you're not involved. Mm -hmm. So your involvement in all of it is important because Without you, there wouldn't be the same question marks, I don't think. Yeah, raised. totally. Um, so one, one thing that I would say about Beginner's Guide to build on what you said is to get back to the idea of characters. There's, there's you, 
and you're you're filling a role. And the the role of a player in a game is a whole side thing. But um, there's uh, the narrator, there's you, and there's Coda. And the narrator and Coda are really the characters that you're exploring in this. Yeah. And you're seeing Coda's work firsthand, and then you're hearing the narrator's reactions to Coda's work firsthand. And it's about how, how do those two things line up together, you know? Um, and, and I think that one, one uh, way that I, I like to see Beginner's Guide is the idea that you're, you're really diving into this intimate perspective of this person's experience of the world. And there's, in these little experimental games that Coda's made, you, you get the sense that this is a person who has a very distinct way of, of appreciating the world. And you can hear in the narrator this sense of appreciation for the way that Coda sees the world. And I think that you being able to, to move through these worlds at your own pace and have the narrator respond to what you're doing in the world by giving you extra little details or telling you that it's okay if you take some time in a certain area to just explore on your own terms really makes it again this this intimate exploration of what is the relationship between an art and an artist and you really do start to see these patterns emerge in the work and even though you don't get to meet Coda as a character it's not that kind of game you still get a sense of who this person is and I think that if you if you were just uh, watching a movie about an artist or a play about an artist, it's very different. Even I mean, in some ways, it's it's just a more uh, structured version of what it's like to be in a really nice gallery of a of a painter's work and start to look at on the a tour of what they do exactly on a tour where you have someone who's saying, and in this piece of Picasso you can tell that this is what was going on in Picasso's life. And, um, you like consume the painting, you consume what they're telling you about it and think about the implications, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and that this it's, that's kind of what beginner's guide is like, except a bit more, um, uh, a bit on steroids, I guess. Yeah. Cause you, you do get a, a deeper sense of, of exploration of this person's personal intimate work. And these, it's all these, these experiences are framed basically as, as not like, again, not, it's not Halo. It's not super popular games. It's these very personal pieces that Coda made to explore something that, and it's, that they were excited about. And it's the same way that you would, you might create something and you might go, I don't know why this is significant to me yet. Um, you really feel like that's that's how Coda could have come about these games, which is, I think, what makes it so relatable to anyone who has any kind of creative itch at all. Because mm -hmm. Coda isn't framed as, you know, most people don't get to be the the director of a big Hollywood movie. You know, that's a thing that only a select few people ever get to do in their lives and only a select few people are interested in doing. And yet a lot of people have interests in dance and art and uh, music, whatever else. And they dabble in, in creation and experimentation. And the, the, the fact that Coda's work is so personal and simple, I think, as you're saying, really makes it 
uh, relatable in a way that when you walk through a gallery of some of the best artists in the world, you don't get. So you, you really get to see this curated look at uh, a kind of normal person's creative impulses. And I think that that, that really keeps keeps the the piece very intimate and relatable and compelling in a way that it wouldn't be if it was a much higher stakes version of a famous artist or whatever yeah and and it's uh it's also not super long like you can play through it in like three hours ish Mm -hmm. um so it's like pretty much the length of a movie um you can get it on any operating system. It's not particularly graphics intensive. It's not one of those games you boot it up and you're like, "This is pr- this is gorgeous." Well, because these games are made by a, a normal person, so they don't yeah. have a huge amount. No triple A engine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So these are so it's really awesome. And if uh, you're ever in the same city as me and are interested, I love playing through it with people. So. <laughs> also, speaking of games that aren't super graphics intensive and are available on many platforms and, and are very intimate and that we like playing with people <laughs> <laughs> uh life is strange is a game that we've mentioned a lot i think it's one of our favorite games of all time uh it's so what, what we want to talk about it here the reason we wanted to mention it was because its mechanics are really connected to its story so life is strange quick background on it you're playing as max caulfield who is a high school girl who uh, witnesses something traumatic and discovers that she has the ability to rewind time. And then the game itself takes place over five episodes. Each episode takes about two hours to play through. So like you were saying about Beginner's Guide being sort of length of a movie, Life is Strange is basically the length of a TV miniseries. So a bit like The Last of Us, Life is Strange really centralizes around one human relationship. And these two characters in the original game, Max and Chloe, really drive the the engagement factor and I think that one one of the reasons that I have been enamored with Life is Strange so intensely for so long is because it really does need to be a game that if if I just watch Life is Strange as a movie or a tv show whereas with The Last of Us I would kind of be like oh that was a pretty good movie with Life is Strange I'd be like this is absolutely not that good <laughs> you know um and at the same time, I think that this point about mechanics emphasizing the story is so important here because Max mechanically has this ability to rewind time. And Max as a character is a person who's very self-conscious and who is constantly having these impulses that are very universal of wishing that they could go back in time and do something differently. And the, the central uh, inciting moment of the relationship between Max and Chloe uh, that starts their arc throughout the experience is basically this this feeling that Max has of, I think it was my fault that our friendship fell apart and I kind of want to rebuild that with you. And that that same impulse of wanting to go back and do something differently is paralleled over and over again because it's a game that's emphasizing narrative branches based on your choices and this ability to rewind and try things differently. So what you're doing over and over and over and over again all throughout the game is you're going back and doing something differently and uh and i think that 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 helps explore not only that theme but also max and chloe as characters in this 
very intense personal way. And again, I, I don't think that it would work if it wasn't a game. Yeah, and, and Max in general is, you can tell pretty quickly from playing the game, is one of those people that's like, oh, shoot, like I wish I had said something like that. Yeah. Um, and that the, that's why you get you as the player being at the ability to have to rewind time is so perfect for Max mm-hmm. because you you get to live out the fantasy of okay if if I had those moments when I was a teenager I was like oh I should I wish I had done this you can like do that in the moment and see what happens mm-hmm. um, which not only adds to like your investment and your curiosity but it really feels right for Max mm-hmm. um, and the the really powerful thing of giving that to the player is then. Um, when you don't rewind, it feels like a big, intense strategic decision that you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can rewind time and essentially erase anything you've done. When you just choose not to do a thing, not even you're not even curious enough to do that, that feels like a really impactful story thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's written into the game as well. There are these moments that I think you're you're talking about where you can you as the player just have the option to go through a conversation and then say, nope, that's what happened. I'm not going to use my power. And also there are these moments that are these big story moments where it explicitly tells you once you move on from this, you can't go back. And I think those are moments where uh, it is this big question of, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next and I have to just make a choice. And because of the limitations of my power, I can't, I can't go back and do it differently if, if I want to. Yeah. And and I think that that's, that's a really powerful way to set up the, the arc of the game, which is about, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's about growing up and, and discovering that some of the things that you, you wish you had, maybe you shouldn't wish you had, you know? Um, so, so I think that the, the ways that the game is continually setting up the, the advantages and disadvantages of having the ability to to actually enact this fantasy of going back and doing something differently really does connect to these characters in this world in a totally different way yeah i and it it just wouldn't be the same if you weren't basically you're not you're not just watching max you're like choosing who max is Mm -hmm. through these player choices so I think that's the other thing that kind of differentiates the feelings you get from watching this as a video game, playing this as a video game or watching it as a movie, mm-hmm. where you're not just given like a max and then have to figure out who she is based on the choices she makes in the movie. You're making some of those choices. So you're like, this is how I see max. And then I think that kind of lets uh, a broader set of narratives potentially emerge from the game where... Oh, yeah. Ben and I both saw Max very differently when we played Our Life is Strange, so our our narratives are actually pretty different from the game. Um, I think to the game's credit. Yeah, the, because it takes, it takes so much writing ability to be able to allow for breadth in a, in a character and how an audience will perceive a character while still making them cohesive enough that you can have them shoulder the emotional weight of a narrative as ambitious as life is strange and, and i think they pull it off yeah and and it's nuts because if you think if you you might be listening at home and going 
well, if a, a character can be two different ways, maybe they're not a strong enough character. But I don't think that's true because I really feel like the way I was interpreting the game, the only way Max could respond is the way I was choosing Max to respond. Mm-hmm. And those weren't the same responses as what Ben had. So it, there's there's this amount of interpretation that you can get in games where people can experience things more personalized to them. And then that story sticks with them more. Because if Max wasn't the way that I felt Max should be, then I would have been slightly more disconnected from the game. Um, I think that's a, that's a thing you can only get in games where you can have two extremely valid narratives emerge from the same game mm-hmm. um, to, to allow players find the one that's right for them. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shouldn't be discounted. Totally. And and we'll mention a couple other games that are interesting counterpoints to this idea, um, which partly comes down to, you know, some games are built with characters that are totally blank slate. You fill in all the details and the game has uh, a wide enough array of different writing options that it can completely change who this person is. Or you can have a character that's more like Max who comes to the story with a certain backstory and a certain ba- amount of baggage and in a, in a certain emotional state where the options that you're presented with are more colors of one consistent character. And it's, yeah, you, you don't get to choose what Max does. Right. You have to think, like, how would my Max handle this? Right. And you're, you're limited in a way that makes sense to the character. So there's a certain amount of variation that... You can't light the school on fire. Right. That's not who Max is. Um, and there are other games that are more of that freedom angle, which we'll get to later. Yeah, but I and again I think this all of those kind of help emphasize the thing that we just said before of empathy per, through perspective. Mm-hmm. Um or th- even through stakes, the stakes mechanics of life is strange. Um the way you have that rewind mechanic but it can't always save you. Mm-hmm. Um all of those life is strange kind of hits all of those things a little bit. Yeah, um, which is why it's such a good game. Yeah. Uh, to, to somewhat pivot 180 degrees, one, one way that I like to look at art in general, um, that's video uh, games turning backwards. Nice. Yes. Great. Uh, I'm turning backwards. Great. And, Let's go backwards. Back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one, one way that I like to look at art in general is this idea of, does the artist believe that love exists in the world? And I think that in, Ooh, it's got heady real quick. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's who I am. <laughs> Um, so, so I think the three examples we've given so far, Last of Us, Beginner's Guide, and Life is Strange, those creators certainly believed in love and that, uh, even if the, the whole, our, 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 we are, art or aren't we are, whatever, the, the, <laughs> the point, the point being that, uh, within the world of the game, love exists in all three of those, those instances. And one game that's a notable exception to that uh, is Dark Souls, which we've mentioned before. And Dark Souls is a bizarre experience for many reasons. And we'll talk more about Dark Souls another time. Uh, the, what we want to talk about here is, is the way that Dark Souls is, a, is an experience that you have to have as a game because of the demands for execution from it. And, uh, and I think that yeah, and real quick, just to kind of recap, so the those games we talked about so far are kind of we wanted to highlight them because of um, the way their stories are set up mm-hmm. and are set up and are 
it's important for them to be games because it adds to the story. So we're now going to move into a section where we're kind of talking about um, the escapism you can find in games and why their mechanics can be so nice and crunchy and you can get lost in them. So like they still have stories and they might be compelling, but the thing the the thing about certain games is that they're like they're so satisfying to play for whatever reason that you get lost in it. And obviously nothing put comes up to games in terms of uh a, a escapism through like occupying yourself. Like nothing nothing else is that same level of like um I I'm going to execute through this thing and therefore lose myself. Like some you get that sometimes in board games. Um, where if like four of you sit around a table and play Terra Mystica, you might experience that kind of thing. But uh, I think video games are are generally known as the the heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> so uh, I think we're kind of diving into why the ones that are awesome are so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so this first one that we're talking about, Dark Souls, um, it is really like a, this mechanics of like, well, you always have to be on. Right. Yeah. So. So Dark Souls is interesting in the context of moving past stories into execution because one of the things that I love the most about the narrative of Dark Souls is that it takes place after the story is done being told. So the the intro to Dark Souls is this epic fantasy story that people generally have heard something similar to it a bunch. There's dragons and mystical people are fighting, whatever. And then the the game opens on you as a low lonely character in a dungeon who is completely decayed after the fall of the the triumphant happily ever after at the end of the dark souls narrative um the pre pre-game dark souls narrative and there's a lot of story stuff throughout the game that's not the point um the point is that you're thrown in after the story is done being told and the kind of large scope narrative of Dark Souls is that all of these great, powerful figures that that had a role in the story that happens before the game begins, you're kind of going through this world, twisting, turning, maze-like world, finding these epic creatures who have decayed over time to these husks of their former selves, and you're sort of snuffing them out one by one. And it's an experience that the... Every, every element of its design is revolving around this sense of, of confusion and horror and despair. And that's coming through in a large part because, as Brian said, you need to be on all the time. And Dark Souls is kind of the, the emblem for, for the two of us about why I, what the, some of the games that I really enjoy versus some of the games that you really enjoy... Uh, we've talked about this before, but that you enjoy games that kind of let you turn off and sort of every so often interact with it and have a more passive experience where you're involved, but it's not your your attention and your ability to interact isn't demanded. It's it's in, yeah it's involved, but it's not demanding. Right. Yeah. Versus Dark Souls demands everything from you and. It, it not only demands in the moment, because in the, the way that it's designed, if you have a fight when you're about to finish the game against one of the starting enemies, if you're not paying attention, you can get defeated, like no problem. And the, the 
idea is that you know in the moment every everyone deserves your attention and then in a larger sense you need so much attention to understanding this maze-like map there's no mini map there, you just have to memorize these twisting locations that are designed to feel different and pretty similar at the same time <laughs> yeah i know i know when the game first came out there were a bunch of people who were making like they were drawing actual physical maps on paper to mm -hmm. like figure out where they were and what everything was around them totally which is a callback to sort of the game the the days of text games and needing to do that in order to navigate through just a written version uh and then also you have to you have to be able to uh consistently execute in a certain section because in a lot of games the way that saving works is that you whenever you're in a in an appropriate moment you can save the game and then if something goes wrong you can just load your last save and everything's fine you just kind of get to pretend that nothing ever happened and dark souls doesn't exist like that dark souls is a cycle so you if you fail it's part of the narrative and you you can lose everything and return back to this this state you were in before and the the experience of going through dark souls for the first time is extremely frustrating this like one one tiny baby step in front of the other to try to figure out where you're going and how to defeat this enemy that's in your way from the next step and generally speaking when you're first playing you end up going through the same short section dozens if not hundreds of times because the game the game just needs you to execute it needs you to have flawless ability to grasp the mechanics and and follow through on them in a way that allows you to succeed and that is completely unlike any other art form that exists in the world so uh two things one to bring it back so you were talking about love and games. Mm -hmm. Dark Souls doesn't feel like it's got any love. No, and in fact, there, there's there's a narrative piece to it where the last character who experienced any love, there's a description of them leaving the world. So love has disappeared from Dark Souls and all that's left is death and decay. So that's fun. <laughs> uh, and then two, I just wanted to briefly um, kind of touch on Okay, so you've kind of set up what the game is, like how it works generally. So in terms of it as a, a thing of mechanics, I think we've also briefly mentioned this before where Dark Souls has combat as a mechanic, but the way the combat works is it's kind of like a really intense puzzle mm -hmm. where it's about learning what the enemy's moves look like and then with each telegraph, being able to respond appropriately in that moment. So it's like a really intense, very quick feedback loop of making sure you understand what they're doing and what you need to do in the exact right moment at all the times. And you do that through doing a run, dying, and then resetting and doing it again. Or in the moment, if an enemy attacks and you have to make a split-second choice about whether to dodge or block or attack, you know, mm -hmm. and, and when to do those things, that, that also requires kind of real-time puzzle solving with a lot of time pressure and stakes put on you. Yeah. So with with all that being said, could you briefly touch on um, what what to you is so appealing about a thing that's so demanding from you? So like Dark Souls is the vessel, but can you talk about why a thing like Dark Souls is so appealing to you and why 
being lost in a thing that demands so much from you is so appealing. Just, I mean, not like we're not going into a dissertation here, but just no, like no, a no, brief high level of yeah. like why that's appealing. Because it <laughs> keyword briefly to, to to people like me, I'm like that sounds hor- horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm sure there's a bit of what you're experiencing in everybody. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give folks a bit of context of like what why totally yeah, and I can I can be very brief with this. So I think that the something that I've seen. And, and read about in, in when other people talk about their experience of Dark Souls is that I've actually felt the same feelings that I have while playing Dark Souls in many parts of my life where it's this confusing, frustrating moment where you, you know, you have to accept when you have a setback and need to keep your eyes focused on, on the long-term goal of what you want out of a certain situation and be willing to put in a certain amount of effort to get there and for me dark souls is this very strange experience of when when you need to to put in effort you have to try your hardest and if that's not enough you have to accept that and move on and and i think that 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 cycle is honestly infinitely valuable for people to learn anywhere in the world because life doesn't happen in a fantasy world you have to just try your hardest and sometimes that's not enough and that shouldn't deter you from trying your hardest so so i think that 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 loop is something that the game is intentionally trying to do and and at many different levels is able to pull off in order to create an experience where you know, you, you have moments, especially when you're going through for the first time, that you get very frustrated, both at the game and also at yourself. And I think that the process of going through Dark Souls from beginning to end is this process of, of hitting a wall, not being able to get through the wall, having the, the, the patience and the discipline and the determination to keep trying. And then when you eventually do step through to the next area, you... You don't necessarily feel a sense of, of accomplishment because it's never the end. You always have another step that you're aiming for in the same way that you never win life. You know, life just keeps going and there's always going to be parts of life that are frustrating and being able to accept those when they come and do everything you can in your power to try to overcome them, I think is is invaluable and again, only, only able to come through in this visceral personal way through an interactive medium like games. Cool. (laughs) So speaking, (laughs) speaking of, of execution and, uh, and not necessarily the same level of, of real time frustration, um, but more kind of larger, uh, strategies and such. There are a lot of games that are exciting because of the way that they use, uh, turn-based mechanics. So if you want to dig into a game that you've experienced that, that really go- speaks to this in a, in a compelling way. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the way that you have Dark Souls and the way it um, you lose yourself in mechanics, is it demanding so much for from you? Um, there are also these games like Invisible Ink, which is the game I'm going to talk about that um, they're very demanding in a different way where it's, you know, 
in order to win, you really have to understand the systems of the game and, and make the, it's a, it's a lot of like sub optimizing, but it's uh, like doing the best thing you can in a bunch of different moments. And if all of those things happen to go your way, then you might win the game. Um, so it's, I mean, a lot of the systems in place in these games are similar ones are set up in board games or something like that. But, um, because of the nature of video games, you can have an extra level of complexity Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have in board games. Now I'm still love board games. Um, and there are certain games that deliver these kind of systems that are really nice. But I think the, the thing about a video game versus a board game for me is that the really nice board games really allow me to appreciate my friends. Mm -hmm. Whereas the really nice video games, I think they don't necessarily, they, they don't have that tool. So they have to they have to have the systems that are different and and more engaging almost for a single person um, you. because you're not all, you're you're not supposed to pay attention to other people around the table. Um, and the worst games are the games that have really awesome, nice, complex systems that anyone could get lost in, but then you completely forget the fact that you have friends that you're mm-hmm. playing with. So you look up after three hours and everybody goes, "Hey, uh." Who's Who what did you win? Yeah. yeah. Um so um Invisible Ink doesn't have that problem at all because it knows that you're the one playing. Um and what it is really quickly, to give you a backdrop, it's a game that you're essentially you're spies, so you're basically like James Bond, and you're doing like infiltration missions, uh, and all of it is turn based. Um and you're not things are not set up in your favor. Um, so like I said, a lot of it is like figuring out what the right thing to do is in the moment and hoping it's good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, so you essentially get put in this like dark map and you, um, have to be stealthy, but quick because the longer you stay on a particular level, the harder it gets, um, as you try to find as much treasure you can get before eventually taking the elevator and leaving the level. Um, so it's a game that definitely is, has like all these elements of, you know, push your luck, hubris. Can you loot one more treasure chest before mm-hmm. time is has elapsed too long? Can you um, save a turn by going around a corner and hoping no one's there? Like all these little things um, you can do in this game. And um, I think more than any other game for me, it was a game that um, because of its length. So just like in Dark Souls, you're not going to succeed at invisible ink the first time you play mm-hmm. um it's a game that really expects you to learn through trying and failing um but it's a, it's definitely true that as you're doing that you see what works and what doesn't um a game that we talked about before is a game called XCOM, which has similar elements it's turn-based it's strategy it's a lot about making the right call in the moment um but that one has a much longer arc so if you fail there's you've invested more in that particular playthrough, so it's a bit more punishing on the learning curve. Mm-hmm. If you love XCOM, you're going to do it anyway. But Invisible Ink is a has a lot faster feedback loop, so you can go back in and you won't have wasted a ton of time um, when you fail, which I think is really important. But there's a lot of really nice systems in place of like you have two people, they have very different skills, they're going to be doing different things. Sometimes you need to stick together, sometimes you need to spread apart. You're like trying to evaluate all of these things in real time. There are a lot of really nice systems that are going on. Um, and the game does the amazing thing of, you know, even when you win, 
you win on a knife's edge. Mm-hmm. So it's always when you do win, it's the most satisfying thing in the world because it's you know if I had done anything differently, I wouldn't have won, mm-hmm. and that's so insanely rewarding when you when you pull off a game that has that tight of a a puzzle built where you know if you win you you feel like you're the one who won it mm-hmm. um and that i think that's a very beautiful and valuable thing and it, the thing about invisible ink that makes it necessary for a game is there's all this you know guard ai behind the curtain and rendering the rooms and a game like this if it was a physical board game would take a while to set up but would there be a lot of bookkeeping with it um there's a really popular game that's that just came out called gloomhaven and it's like 30 percent of it is like bookkeeping um which if you like bookkeeping you're like oh yeah but invisible ink would would possibly if you tried to make a board game version of it be even more than that mm-hmm. um which at some at some point that like bookkeeping versus playing ratio starts getting messed up so or you just have to simplify it in something like burgle bros or whatever where yeah you can't you can't have as complex systems Right, so that I think that's why a game like Invisible Ink needs that behind the curtain computer game approach, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting because we have all these other things comparing themselves to movies, and now we're kind of pivoting a bit and talking about a thing versus a board game. But it is like when you're when we're talking about like why should video games exist, we are thinking about okay, how how could this story be told in other mediums? Would they be as good? And I think. Um, Invisible Ink, uh, because of all the systems going on, uh, it's really nice to to have it all done behind the curtain. And there's something about it being on a computer that feels right too, because it's like a slick, like very clean modern game. And I think having that on a computer just feels right too. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, could you briefly explain what you mean when you say systems, and also why you find them engaging? Yeah, absolutely. I'll take a stab at that. So um, what I'm talking about with systems is um, kind of what what the what you can do in the game generally, and and how those things relate to other things that are happening in the game. So let's start with like a really basic thing about Invisible Ink is whenever you get to a door, it's closed. So you can either spend one you, each turn you just like in XCOM you have a certain number of like available available action points so you might start with like eight action points so you could spend one action point and just move into the next room and see what's going on in there or you could spend one action point to just uh peek in the room and see if you boldly move in there there are there going to be people is it going to be a bad situation for you um so should you open that door and just boldly go in, or should you open that door and peek? You're not going to have full vision, so there's a chance that there are going to be people in the room that you can't see anyway because you're just peeking behind the door. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are kind of saying how hubrisly do you want to be? How you're, you're, Each of those decisions in the game, it's like I either do A or B. If But those things when you're playing with A and B, you're weighing um, how time efficient am I being, um, how time efficient do I need to be versus how safe do I want to be? How safe do I need to be? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think board games, video games, whatever, whenever we're talking about systems in, in, in a strategy kind of regard, mm-hmm. we're talking about, um, do I want to do what, what are my available options and what are the implications of those? I know I'm going to be sacrificing some, 
some positive condition whenever I'm doing one of these moves, but I'm also, there will be another positive, a different positive associated with it. So you're trying to balance those in the right amount. So it's a game about trying to mod like manage how safe, how quick all of those things at the same time. And, and why does your brain like doing that? Uh, I think I, I, my, my brain just likes that. Um, it, it likes figuring out, it, it likes being able to see a big picture and go, oh, okay, cool, cool. Let me, let me see, let me test myself and see if I know what the right move is here. Um, and then when you make the right choice, when you're balancing those systems of equations, it feels so good. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the feedback you get from that. And the visible link does a really good job of giving you that feedback because like, uh, there have been moments where I've, I've needed to. So I just run into a door in a room with a guard and then they notice me, but because I went so quick, they don't know where I am. And then I get to the elevator and then I leave the mission immediately. And I'm like, all right, awesome. Like in that moment I needed to run. There've been moments where I've opened, like peeked in the door, seen a guard and gone, now is not my moment. <laughs> so it's, it is like having, especially, and the best things are the ones that give you just a few options. Mm -hmm. And in those just a few options, there's huge implications of what you do. So I think Invisible Ink is, is a game that's awesome for that, where you're not, there isn't infinite possibilities. You have like three or four choices and it is about figuring out which of those is right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a game that does that brilliantly. Speaking of making choices and figuring out which is right, uh, I think one one game that that we played a lot uh, was this game called Overcooked, which is uh, very much focused on both execution and systems in some ways. Because I remember in the moment we would be you would need to do everything right, and then afterwards we would talk about how, in a larger strategic sense, like what how what makes go? sense. So what is it? It's a it's a game cooperative cooking game. Yes. So each of you are you play with up to four people. All of you are chefs in a kitchen that's too small, um, and there's always things going wrong. <laughs> so you might be in a kitchen where uh, it's on two different parts of an iceberg, and the only way to get from one side to the other is with little ice patches that move down a stream. Mm -hmm. So you have to time it, slide. and it's sliding. And you might fall in the water, and if you do, then you're you're dead for like five seconds or whatever. Um, so it's a, it is a game about teamwork and working together, but also you don't really have time to coordinate. <laughs> so it's it's a game about like blind trust in the people you're playing with. People almost. people need their orders, and and uh, I I haven't yet played this game with anybody who is pro professionally is in the food service industry. <laughs> I don't know how much this would be like a trigger for them, basically, um, but it does. It is. It is this like endless pressure of people who want orders and all of the complexity that goes into making a meal for someone, or at least some of the complexity. So you need to have the ingredients chopped. You need to have them cooked long enough. You need to have them put on a plate. You need the plates to be washed. You need every everything to happen. And then the the I think for me one of the most compelling parts, which uh, is is also what makes it more of a systems game than just being uh, a mechanical game is that each kitchen each level is designed with different limitations and and how you move as a team around a level without getting in each other's way 
is also a huge part of succeeding in Overcooked. Yeah. Um, I would definitely say that there's always more tasks than there are chefs. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that the game plays with you. You can't just be like, okay, you're chomping, I'm cooking, you're doing dishes. Because, they're, oh, but who's plating the food once it's done and order, delivering it to the customers? Uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so it's this brilliant thing of... Uh, there's it's it's always harder than it should be and and it's really hard to go in to a level play it without a game plan and win Mm -hmm. um which is what why when you succeed you really feel like you've succeeded as a team Mm -hmm. um and why my bullet for this in the lost in mechanics category is co-op madness (laughs) because it is it's it's one of the best things I've ever had for like being able to enjoy a thing with your friends and really deliver that awesome co-op thing of we won and it's because Ben was awesome. We won because Marietta was an amazing chopper. We won because, you know, uh, you were amazing. I'm really good at not falling into the ice. (laughs) (laughs) It's more so than any game I've played. I think it delivers on that promise of we're going to deliver you a co-op experience that's challenging not too challenging but like challenging definitely challenging if you don't work together you won't succeed and when you do succeed you're gonna be all like high-fiving each other and saying oh wow awesome job ben we Mm -hmm. wouldn't have won without you so um like as a thing to let you enjoy your friends which is kind of like the the promise of board games and they so it's funny they made a they made a game called kitchen rush which is essentially overcooked except a board game mm-hmm. and um shut up and sit down who are my favorite board game reviewers were took a look at it and they were like yeah it's good but um one it's too hard two <laughs> uh i think i'd just rather play overcooked <laughs> so there's this thing about it where it's like even if you like that like let's all gather around and like have a tactile thing in front of you overcooked is almost too perfect at what it does mm-hmm. to be replicated anywhere else well, one, one thing about it uh pun intended it's very bite-sized so so again Hard. because because games can I'm do so much so fast not okay <laughs> with the pun um they uh you can you can have a game like overcooked that has a, a fair amount of complexity to it distilled in a very simple bubble so when you have to worry about chopping food and you know completing everything within a certain time frame you know the pressure of of hurrying to get something done that's happening because the game is able to do so much so fast with with the simplicity of of how you interact where basically there's two controls like pick up and interact and that's it and and then also the the ways that they put this this time pressure on you and how it has instant feedback where if you interact with the place where you get buns to put for a burger it, you get it immediately at the same time that somebody else is washing a dish so the fact that it, the game as a digital experience is able to process that information that fast it allows it to be these quick you know five minute games that have the same emotional roller coaster as a much larger experience yeah and there are there are more than two controls there's also the button where you can just pretend to swear and you go which everyone does if you've already lost basically yeah <laughs> which is awesome um but yeah no definitely 
definitely it's a roller coaster and i would say that um it is it's definitely the best co-op experience i've ever had in like mm-hmm. anything because um and it consi- especially consistency um where every time you play a level of overcooked you're gonna have that which is nuts that you can play this game for so long and it still delivers on its promise there's there is no dud you know there's there's no well this one's a little too abstract this one's a little no everything is purely awesome yeah so um with that plus the fact that you can play it with like two buttons and a joystick uh this is this is a game that like everyone should play so so again i think that it's it's reinforcing this idea that the the ways that you interact with the experience really make it come alive and make you want to dive into it more so talking about the ways that uh when you're when you're lost in the mechanics of a game uh if you need to be able to execute like in dark souls or need to be able to think about systems like invisible ink or be able to cooperate with your friends in simple bite-sized portions quickly (laughs) quickly you're you're able to really dive in and uh and want to be in these worlds and speaking of worlds, oh well, wow! <laughs> um, and and also in some ways the antithesis to bite-sized and and emotional roller coaster. Well, wow! <laughs> um, talking about the ways that a world can be vast and alive and and exist around you. Uh, I think one of my favorite games, if not my favorite game of all time, um, is this game called The Witcher Three. Quick pause. Yeah. So um, I'm going to notice a shift. Um, so before we're, we're kind of talking about like video games storytelling and mm-hmm. we're kind of comparing them to like movies or TV shows and why they're so important. When we're talking about execution, it's almost like we're comparing it to the, the best things out there that deliver that promise of like systems and execution where you, you have to be involved. So we're kind of comparing the board games. I think when we're talking about world building and tone, we're kind of comparing things to books because mm-hmm. nothing else really sets up these like vast, huge, open things with imagination sprawling in every direction like books. So um, I think that's kind of the foil that I just wanted to present of like, okay, we're talking about the world in The Witcher. Um, what what about it as a video game is delivered versus reading about it in The Witcher, which you are particularly well <laughs> suited to answer because you've not only played all of the Witcher games, you've read all of the Witcher books. Right. So The Witcher is a is an intellectual property that's based on the work of this Polish author, and the games are made in Poland by people who love the books and wanted CD to, Project Red. Yes, and they wanted they wanted to dive in deeper to the characters, um, and and the games from a narrative place aren't the story of the books they're fictionalized based on what happens next and and i think that the one interesting thing talking about comparing these massive sprawling games to books which you know we're about to talk about three very compelling ones is that they sort of have to check all these boxes that came before them in some way shape or form and as we've said there, there are a number of these games that kind of do this in compelling ways you know you and i have talked about the world of life is strange. Arcadia Bay being this living place that you know feels more real to us than most environments in stories. Um, and in the same way, Witcher Three sort of tries to do everything. And I think that 
one of the the most broad compliments that people pay play pay the game is that it actually manages to pull off most of them fairly well, which is kind of crazy. Woo! Huge praise. Huge praise. <laughs> um, so, so Witcher 3, uh, I think one of the things that I find the most compelling about it, um, the very quick background on it is it's a fantasy world. It's much more rooted in folklore than in kind of Tolkien-esque, made-up-from-scratch elves and whatever fantasy. Um, it... It has some of those elements, although mostly the parts of the story that are compelling are very exclusive to kind of Polish folklore. And and then I think additionally, uh, the other part of it that, that makes me really engage with it is that the perspective of it is that you're this wandering monster slayer and you have a lot of friends who are spread around the world who you interact with in a variety of different contexts and the story does eventually get to a pretty high stakes exciting place uh and at the same time as we said the it's not it's not bite-sized roller coaster moments for the most part you're just kind of wandering around this world and the way that people treat you is very different than in some games like it where you're heralded as this epic hero of sorts you're kind of just this this uh, one of my favorite critics calls Geralt like the equivalent of a wandering chimney sweep, who <laughs> sort of like goes from place to place doing this blue collar work of oh there's a monster that's you know attacking you at night, all right fine like you got a few you got a few gold coins I could have for it sure and then you kind of like go and track down this monster and go back and get your payment and move on and uh, and I think that the that really reinforces this idea of the living world around you because in the Witcher, if Geralt wasn't in the story, the world would keep going and CD project red and Witcher three, especially really try to have all of the characters that aren't you have a routine. So at the crack of dawn, the farmers will, will get out and start working in the fields. And as you're riding through the countryside, you'll see, you know, they did a ton of research into how, a medieval environment and economy would actually function and and seeing how you need to have this many people growing food to support a city that is built on a on a strange geographic location so it isn't this like perfect tolkien-esque like everything is is beautiful craftsmanship sometimes in the districts with less money like you got to build a house on a on a weird shaped hill so it kind of leans a bit and it's supported by like a random piece of wood that keeps it from falling over you know the foundation's shifting or whatever and and they they have so much attention to detail in so many different ways throughout their world which is so big and and it really manages to to create this experience of when you're when you're just walking through the streets of a city or or running through the the countryside or whatever running through a forest it feels like you know this is a place that that has a life cycle that is in existence without you as the player in it and in some ways that just makes me want to be in that world more because it doesn't feel like i'm jumping into something where everyone is treating me like the most important person in the room i'm just sidestepping into another reality that that allows me to to explore on my own terms where nobody is really 
demanding anything unrealistic of me, you know? So if I want to just get up and go through a, for a walk in the woods and like try to, try to pet a deer or whatever, I can do that, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's what I was going to say is, so you have these, you have a bunch of these towns that very much feel alive. There are a bunch of them. They're very spread out. Um, they have very different feels about them. So being, um, cities in different continents, absolutely. People talk differently, have different traditions that you pick up on really quickly. But even towns in the same continent, you like you can tell between a rich city, a poor city, what kind of city this is and what they value. But um, you also have that really nice thing of like in between them, there's pretty much nothing, mm-hmm. um, which is it's kind of like it's the equivalent of like having in the middle of those things, having like Euro truck simulator where mm-hmm. it's a game where you're like essentially just like driving a truck down the freeway where you're riding your horse onto the next city and you just have this like beautiful scenery around you of like forests and trees or depending on what continent you're on, it could be completely different. It might be mountains. It might be like seaside beaches. It might be forests, Mm -hmm. um, all really, really pretty. So it's nice that, and those, those environments feel pretty alive too, um, where, you know, sometimes creatures will fight themselves or, um, and like wolves chasing deers or whatever. Yeah. Um, so everything about it definitely feels like you're exploring this thing that's not about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that one of the one of the things that I uh, appreciate the most about the overall design of the world is how it it is in stark contrast in a lot of ways to the story, and it has an interesting conversation back and forth because especially in those kind of picturesque areas that you're describing when you're, you know, slowly uh, walking down a, down a road or through a field or whatever, um, it, it creates this dissonance because I think that the narrative of the world of the characters that it's exploring tends to, you know, there's, there's, there's humor, there's a lot of like fun moments in it. It also gets pretty dark and, and there are a lot of stuff in it that, you know, for me seem to suggest some of the uglier parts of what it means to be a person and what people are capable of doing in the world and that being held in opposition with this completely beautifully rendered natural environment you know i i talk about and and you've seen me do this before where i i enjoy the experience of being overwhelmed in a city or in any part of the world and just hopping on uh a horse roach and riding off into the wilderness and in a video game in a video game <laughs> and in, in the witcher and it and it gives it gives this like very compelling sense of of loneliness and escapism and just kind of like meditating on uh some of the the strange dualities of what it means to be alive you know the like beauty and the pain and whatever else and and I think that you know that that doesn't happen without a tremendous amount of effort to create both of those sensations in a very powerful way. And um, you know, to kind of pivot from this, I think that the next general category we're talking about of video games and world building is like the idea of exploring a world and like kind of seeing how it interacts with you, but really like having a giant place to explore and and investigate. So one of the cool things about The Witcher is you make a choice 
in the game and it's not like you're not going to be king right like yeah. you are you are like a wandering chimney sleep but there are ramifications to the stuff you do but it kind of ripples and part of the cool thing about the game is you might you might have been in an area where a king got replaced and then you come back later and then you see that it's a bit different um, because of what you were doing so it's really cool there are these like subtle implications of you're not look you're not going around being king or anything but little things like changing who the leader is in a place have ramifications on the people who live there totally um and i think we want to pivot that and kind of put that in conversation if one of us had played a game like breath of the wild the new zelda game on switch that everybody loves we could talk about a game like that and how exploration in that is its own beautiful amazing thing but i think um it's kind of good that we're not because we're actually going to dive into the mass effect trilogy mm-hmm. um which uh for video game people is is almost is it's kind of it's fran- a franchise that's like in power to something like a star trek or a star wars where it's like this big epic space fantasy story that like people have these insane religious back stories too um i i i kind of missed the phase where it was like mass effect but you were right into it so why don't you talk a bit about like that mass effect world building and and um not not how it's different from the witcher but how it's awesome that what they've created and and why it's fun to explore that world totally yeah um so so mass effect is uh the way that i've i've seen it described that i like the most is it's a space opera so it's the trilogy is this sprawling thing where each each installment pushes forward the main story and also continues to dig deeper into these sub communities that it's built. And this, I mean, this is like, this is a project. Like (laughs) Martin Sheen is the like main voice character is, and who's not you. It's just like one of the people in the game is also Martin Sheen. So like there's an, there's an intensity to this project of like money, attention and detail. Yeah. Huge budget, (laughs) sprawling experience. Uh, so I think I think that the 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 part of Mass Effect that that I'd like to talk about the most in terms of the world reacting to you is uh, sort of how how it created an entire world from scratch. You know, um, it's not like The Witcher, which is based on existing material. Mass Effect is completely original intellectual property. Like they made their own like alien races and gave them insane backstories and personalities and stuff totally and and the yeah each each of the alien races is meticulously designed to look and sound completely different from the others the way the histories of how they've interacted with each other in the past is completely influencing the politics of what's happening in the present and on top of that there's this much larger again the opera part of it is that it is this incredibly high stakes you know over the top uh intense experience uh where you know there's so so much at stake all the time and uh and that main story is really about digging into the history of of the ways that that different alien races have interacted in space all throughout this massive timeline and in the middle of all that, the way that you're positioned within the game is as the first human specter. And specters are 
essentially just like special <laughs> operatives. Um, they're, um, it's basically, if you think about within the Star Wars universe, if you think about what a Jedi is, it's basically a Jedi with no Jedi powers or with like very limited Jedi powers where you're not, you're not like a, a, a total like super powerful fantasy character who can take on an entire army by yourself. You're, you're basically a soldier and you can develop certain abilities. Uh, although at the same time, you, you just, you're, you're just a person. And I think that one thing that Mass Effect does that I love um, about it is that the way that your character is presented is very relatable and you know you're when when other characters are interacting with you and talking about you or whatever the the sense you get is that you're much more akin to a celebrity than you are to the savior of the galaxy so even by the time the series has really hit its stride and you're you're doing stuff that's you know on the on the you know the universe will be destroyed or not based on what you do. Basically the, the, the same perspective that's gotten you there makes you feel like a human being. Um, whereas I think a lot of games that are power fantasies don't do that. And the worlds don't feel as alive because they treat you like this inhuman godlike creature. And you're not treated like that in mass effect. You're just a soldier. And, uh, and I think that the, we talked before about how in a game like The Witcher or Life is Strange, the character is coming to the table with a certain set of backstories that influence who they are. In Mass Effect, you're just at the, at the onset of the game, you just choose a, a backstory that's very simple about like where you're from and what's motivating you. And then, and then you're given this huge breadth of options about how to interact in the world. And, there's the system in the game that's kind of Paragon Renegade, which talks about, you know, if you're if you want to do a thing that's incredibly benevolent or incredibly ruthless in the pursuit of something larger, uh, you're you're able to do that. And the ways that those feed back into themselves is really interesting. And again, that kind of continues to reinforce this idea of this world around you of of so you know so much compelling material about. The politics of, of how these alien races are interacting with each other and you know what what's going to start a war what's going to allow for these people to to broker peace you know what what are you willing to do in order to get where you want to be for the good of of the larger galaxy so and, yeah so um i mean all of that sounds awesome so what what do you think about um why Mass Effect is better as like a game versus like as a book. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, clearly some amount of it is the choices you're making and the choice feedback loop of giving you the gratification of how you want to play Shep. Um, but beyond that, are there, is there, is there anything else or if not, then just like really dive into why it feels so impactful to have choice in that game. Yeah. I think both things are true. I think that, uh, the, the impacts of your choices are tremendous and they carry over from game to game. You can have a character die in the first game and that all that affects the rest of all the games. Um, there's, there's other stuff about, uh, so, just, yeah, yeah, I don't, so I don't care about like how it works. 
Like, talk to me about why that feels special. Like, totally. why do you, why it makes it feel better. Yeah, well, so I think that uh, whereas the world of The Witcher feels alive because of this constant busy work in the background, Mass Effect feels alive because each place has so much attention put into how it looks, how it feels, you know, when you're when you're walking around the the front line of a of a battlefield on a on a dangerous planet with with poisonous gas in the atmosphere that's very different than when you're in the the citadel when everything is carefully controlled and and uh constructed to support an optimal life and and i think that uh in the same way that um we we touched before on on different customs that uh that in in the world of, of Mass Effect, if you go to a different place with a different alien race, you really have to be mindful of, of what you're saying and how you're saying it, and what you do in that place. Because in a lot of in a lot of opportunities throughout the game, your your choices can be in diametric opposition to what the the species expects of you and of anyone who's in their in their environment. And again, I think that the the ways that you're able to interact with the world around you are driven by this this ultimate goal and and you're presented with this this experience of you have to choose how you're going to to take steps to get there and then you see the world around you get influenced by the choices that you make and and i think that a book a book can't give you that level level of detail and mm. and specificity. Um, I I've never read a book that has had you know a wall of text giving the lore of a culture that that makes me feel as excited to learn more about that than when I'm interacting with a new species for the first time mm-hmm. and trying to figure out like how how they respond based on what I say and and carefully thinking about, you know, not only what are the differences between me and this and this other entity, but also within that culture, what are the differences between these different factions that have different political interests or whatever. So when you're talking to one person of a specific alien race, you know, one one Asari is very different than another Asari. Yeah. And and there are lots of subplots throughout all the games that dig into those differences and I think that continues to reinforce this world that not only has people from different customs and backgrounds, but also within those that everyone is individual and unique. So that makes the whole world feel much more alive than it would be if it wasn't interactive. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm glad you say that versus if it wasn't interactive, because there's the one level of the books, even if we're talking about like a epic fantasy TV show, like a game of Thrones, you might follow a subculture and become super invested in them and really root for them. But there's something very different about having that context. And then, then the game saying, Hey, do you want to, do you like them enough to be ruthless and protect them mm-hmm. and like potentially hurt someone else? And like letting you weigh those ramifications sounds like a really interesting and, uh, like cool thing that the game does for you yeah and the last the last point i'll make is to dial it back to to characters which we talked about before i think that 
there are lots of exciting large political moments and going into a new world where you're on the surface and interacting with the the locals in different ways is really compelling though what mass effect had created that i think affected people in, in the largest way is that all of those cultures and the complexities within them are distilled into the people who are your companions on your ship so when you think about someone like tali or or whoever you know they garris they have all of these these conflicting feelings about who they are and what they have to do for the good of both themselves as individuals and their people in general now that these all these alien races are interacting with each other um and and your personal relationship with the people on your crew is really what makes mass effect mass effect mm -hmm. because that allows you to dig into all this really complex lore that they built in a way that's very human and very personal and very intimate um, and i think that most people who are mass effect fans if you ask them about the the parts of the experience that that linger with them the most everyone's gonna lean toward the characters on your ship because those are those are the the people that you're or the creatures whoever they are that you're around <laughs> that you're around the most and and that really allows the the experience to feel alive in a new way yeah and and the the third final kind of bullet we have in this world building tone mega sub thread we have here um is the idea of of games kind of conferring a particular style or feeling and and how when they do it it can be um as cool or cooler than other mediums we think of when we really think about something that's super stylized so i think um to pair back from books for a second and look more at like a comic book or like a tv show or a movie so like a you know, like Sin City or like uh, um, Grand Budapest Hotel, things that are, they feel too particular to be a work, like an actual real world, but it's very much, you can tell that it's like a stylized world and it's so stylized that you're like, oh, that's cool, I'm in. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of video games that do that really well. Mm -hmm. um, the one I wanted to touch on briefly is a game called Bastion. Um, it's true of any super giant game. Who's the studio who makes this? So we've talked about Pyre in the in the past, um, which is the same same group. Transistor also, um, but Bastion is the first game that they did, uh, and it's it is really it's super stylized. There's um, like they made their own kind of country soundtrack to it. Mm -hmm. um, that when you're walking around, it's playing. Um, and it's really cool. There's this like floating platform sense to it where as you walk forward, things fall from the sky that allow you to continue walking forward, which really, I'd say the thing about their style is that in addition to having like a particular storytelling tone and visual style and visual and audio style, there's also the game also responds to you. Mm -hmm. which is i think the thing that you can only get in games for sure of you can have this super stylized thing and it can be reactive to you which feels awesome especially in a game like bastion and this is, i think bastion's the game that definitely the most i've ever seen this so there's a narrator in bastion 
So it's not like not a character at all. It's just like a narrator. And when you move your person around in the world, depending on what you do, the narrator will say different stuff. So you'll um, you'll hit an enemy and they'll hit you back, and then the narrator might say something like, "Kid got him. Enemy got him too, though." And so like, it is like it's fully responsive to you. Like tiles don't fall from the ceiling unless you move forward. Uh, if you fall off the side, the narrator might be like, "Kid falls off." that won't happen again so like i mean what can what can beat that you know it just it has to be a game yeah so the i think that there's a lot of one thing that that from my background in creating stuff you know a film has a certain range of tools in its toolbox to create a style so like you mentioned it has music it has sound design it has visual style um and one thing particular way people talk Totally. Yeah. And and I think that one, you know, again, yeah, acting, whatever. The the thing about a game is that it's it's adding an entire new dimension. And and I think that Bastion, like you're saying, is this this compelling example of the interactivity being part of the style. Yeah. And and you know, if if we even look at another couple examples from like Transistor, uh, which is the follow up, like there's a button in Transistor where as long as you're not in combat, you hold it and then your character just starts singing to the music that's playing already in the background. The soundtrack. That's nuts. That is cr- like at any moment I can just start doing that and then it'll sing along perfectly with whatever was in the background. Like talk about a thing being responsive and like yes anding its own sense of world and tone and stuff. That's insane. Like the the, the fact that that exists at all is amazing. And I think... Again, like you said, it's only possible in a video game. The fact that I can be walking around in that game and then I can hit a button and then like toss my sword up and like twirl for no reason at all, um, just because I'm red and I would be stylized like that. Yeah, um, it's crazy. Like nothing, nothing compares to um, what these are because it's just it's like a whole new it's explore, exploring a whole new layer of this. I want to make a thing that's uniquely me. You can make a thing that's uniquely me with just more dimensions than you can get anywhere else. So, so yeah, that's that's uh, our our little piece on on how games have the ability to help you get lost in stories, lost in mechanics, and lost in worlds. And and there's definitely a lot more things that we appreciate about games. But I think as we were going by going through our list of like our favorite games these were kind of the broad categories of when we were like, okay, why do we like these? I think these are the ones that really stood out to us. And obviously as an aside to that, there are a lot of other games that are examples of these things that we didn't mention. So like talk about empathy through perspective, firewatch, you know, talk about mechanics, emphasize story. Like we can, we can go on and on, but obviously we did and we had to kind of (laughs) cut it off at some point. So this is kind of like an intro and really, we just like we did our like best of 2017 games podcast as like kind of a love letter games. This is another one where we really wanted to, if if someone has never played a video game in their life or has played them on and off, we really wanted to give them our reasoning of why we spend so much time doing them and why we think that that's such a special medium. So thanks for listening. That's it. That's episode 10. Uh, I'm I'm Brian, or the also known as Noam Kap- over that Kapupupa.
Okay. Whatever. Bye.